Thank you. I'm really delighted to be able to be here. Um, I remember the first time I was invited by Sigve to travel to the wonderful uh, Bethel Church in, uh, in Norway, Oslo, and it was a, a great experience. But I think that my connection with the Sabbath school class, and I believe this room, it may be a slightly different one, but certainly in this building, goes back even longer than that. In uh, the uh, early uh, 1980s, I was a student at Andrews University, and we made a trip west, young kids, my wife and I. And I remember one Sabbath at Loma Linda, we went to a class taught by Jack Provencher. And I believe this is the class. And is, could this still be the room? Nine, I think it was 1984. And you know what? I still remember the subject that he spoke about. And I, I don't remember the subject of every Sabbath school class that I've been to. He spoke, and I wonder if anyone is here and remembers that. He spoke about the challenges of keeping the Sabbath, whether this was related to the Sabbath school lesson or not, I do not know. The challenges of Sabbath keeping in the context of healthcare, a hospital. And he came up with a, just a wonderful vision that patients should not say, pray that your sickness may be on any day other than the Sabbath, but that they should say, if you do get sick and have to go to an Adventist hospital, pray that it'll be on the Sabbath because you get the most wonderful treatment. Volunteers coming in and out, uh, although nobody, you know, everyone who's working during the normal week is taking a Sabbath break. Other volunteers are coming in. I'll never forget that. So that was the other time I was at the Sabbath school class, and it's a delight to be here with you again today. I've been asked to talk a little bit about things that I think you've been exploring in this class. Um, and I'll be talking a little bit today about models of salvation in the history of Christianity. And so today will be a little bit historical, maybe a little technical. Uh, and then the next two weeks, I think we'll show the relevance of some of this, hopefully. And uh, we look forward to uh, sharing with you a little bit. But before I begin to try to consider salvation with you, to think through what salvation really means... Could I make a, a simple distinction with you? Let's see if this works. Distinction between three words, which stand for three dimensions of our faith experience. Faith itself, which I'd like to suggest, is an existential experience. I mean, faith is something, is a response to God. It happens on a personal level. And it's a fundamental thing. You believe, you don't. You trust or you don't. Do you understand what I mean by that? Faith. Secondly, doctrine which is often developed in times of crisis when you need to try to plant the hedges or set the boundaries, you know. This, this we believe and this we don't. And then theology, which is the attempt to put the pieces together. What, what people don't really realize, often doctrine and theology are conflated with each other. And I think it's helpful to make a distinction. The purpose of doctrine is clarifying what we believe, often at a time of crisis, setting sort of perimeters and boundaries, whereas theology says, how do these various things we believe fit together? What is the overarching theme? How does it, how does it work? And so we're going to do today just a little bit of theology. Is it all right to do a bit of theology on Sabbath? I don't know. At, at last year it's okay, but I'm not sure about here at, at Loma Linda. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> so we're going to do some biblical theology, uh, thinking together a little bit here. Um, so, just an example. Faith, for example, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
At some point, one either believes that or you don't. You've heard it, and you've responded to it, and you've said, yes, I'm trusting God to save me, or not. That is, that is faith. And, you know, faith, we share faith with a very wide circle of people, don't we? Not all of whom we agree with doctrinally, and not all, certainly not all, who share our theological convictions and the way we put things together. That's faith. I, I thought I'd refer to something that doesn't come from Adventist tradition, be a little safe, but still fairly recent. You all know about the, 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 Nazi, the rise of Nazism in Germany uh, during the 30s. And you need to know that Germany is overwhelmingly a Christian country. Some parts Catholic and some parts Protestant. And um, historians are intrigued as to exactly why so many of the of the population seem to be attracted or seem to be swayed by Hitler's ideas. This is a stamp. <laughs> so, I see some of you, uh, a fairly recent one, commemorating a declaration that is very significant in church history, the Barman Declaration of 1934. It was the formation of the Confessing Church, the Bekende Kirche in Germany, and largely written by Karl Barth. Um, but Lutherans, United Church, and uh, Reformed members in Germany came together, very small in number compared to the large German Christians, to say, essentially, that, that in German says, Jesus Christ is the one Word of God. Jesus Christus is das eine Wort Gottes, is the only Word of God. And basically that, that was the rallying cry to say, we can't, because the, the, the German Christians were saying, well, in the spiritual realm, we turn to the Bible and we turn to Jesus. But in the political realm, God has set up rulers. And uh, Hitler is a Fuhrer. He's the leader. And in political terms, we need to obey. And we can certainly hope for good things for the folk, for the people. And so we had the sort of two kingdoms doctrine. And uh, this was a, a counter to it. You see how doctrine works? No. <laughs> no, the true church is going to say there's only one Lord and one truth that we must serve. And that is Jesus Christ. Whether we serve within the church or within the community or the polis. And those are two relatively distinct but overlapping uh, domains. But God is Lord not only of the church but of the whole world. And therefore we must serve Jesus Christ. And we could list many others. So that's an example of doctrine. Um, example of theology, and I'll use one that probably... <laughs> um, and I, I don't know how many Schleiermacherians there are in the audience. I'm not one of them. But I think Schleiermacher was one of the great theological minds of the, uh, of the 19th century. He certainly shaped modern theology. As I tell my students, I think he was brilliant. Brilliantly wrong, but brilliant. <laughs> and uh, he, two books, uh, 1979, uh, sorry, 1799, he wrote this famous book on religion, Speeches to its Cultured Despisers, which effectively took Protestantism, which had been, uh, theology was a science of God, and science particularly of salvation, of how God saves us. And when Schleiermacher was finished, theology was the study of religion. And religion was the feeling of absolute dependence, which was universal. So a fundamental sea change in the way we understood. And then later on, in the end of his life, in 3031, he put it together in a systematic theology, which was an overall way of putting the pieces together. 
brilliant because the architecture of the whole thing is incredible. He was a fundamentally liberal. He's the father of liberalism. He didn't believe in miracles. He didn't believe in the resurrection and those sort of things. But he was still able to retrieve so much of Christian thought and put it together in a kind of a package. So I refer to him as an example of uh, someone who does theology. I choose him as an example because I want to acknowledge right up front that sometimes theologians go astray. Right, So watch carefully uh, as I share something with you. But I'm going to be mainly historical and talk a little bit about the history of theology and make a reference to a very famous book written by a Scandinavian, uh, a Swede, Gustav Aulen, and uh, Sigve will tell me if I pronounced that correctly. It'll pass. And uh, the book's title is a Latin phrase which has almost entirely by his efforts... Uh, become one of the ways we describe how, how to understand what Jesus did in terms of salvation. Christus Victor. And even though most of us don't know Latin, we can figure out what that means. Jesus as Victor. And so we'll be uh, referring a little bit to this book in which he outlines three different models of salvation. And this will fer- uh, serve as a sort of background for what we'll do next week in the week to come. Another word that we often talk about when we talk about atonement, uh, we talk about salvation, is the word atonement. I, I love this word because I like to break it down into at-one-ment, which can help you to understand. And maybe uh, since this is a Bible study class, it may be helpful for us to just read one passage. This is, in fact, in the King James Version, the only passage in the Bible in which the word atonement appears is translated into the King James English. So let's read it uh, together as our, in a sense, our scripture reading. Romans 5, 6 to 11. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. A lot of themes in there that we'll be talking about over the next little while. So salvation, atonement is the topic, and the basic question is, oh, as a teacher, <laughs> I have to do a quiz. Can you, will you do a quiz with me? Do you mind? Uh, so let's, let's try this and see how it works. Um, I'd like you just to, we'll, we'll take a vote. I, we won't let anyone else know, so don't, don't worry. Just what, what comes into your mind. Which of the following statements would you choose as the best descriptor? Obviously, you know, you may have a better one. But uh, which of these would, would you like to vote for? You could only vote for one. Which would you say best describes why Jesus 
uh, came to earth, what he was trying to do, and what is the essence of this thing we call salvation. Remember, we're trying to consider salvation, we're trying to understand it, and therefore we're trying to see how it makes sense, even to people in the 21st century. All right, so let's see. Uh, all those who believe that the best way of describing this to get it really to its essence and short and sweet is that Jesus came to die for our sins. How many? Oh boy, this is like an auction. Will anyone give me a hand? <laughs> Do I see two? Sigve, what have you done with these people? <laughs> Not a soul. Hmm. Loma Linda, Loma Linda. So, nobody's going to vote for Jesus came to die for our sins. What about he came to show us the love of God? Oh, well, I, I'm not going to count, but I'm going to do what you know, happens at constituency meetings. I get a general sense, right? <laughs> Two options. All right. What about he came to overcome the devil and principalities and powers and evil? Okay, a smattering. If I keep going, I'm getting a few more. This really is like an auction. Uh, how many to satisfy the wrath of God? I think it was even mentioned in our text. Nobody? Wow, I do see. Did Gray and Maxwell ever take this class? <laughs> All right. What about liberate us from evil? Any takers there? All right, very good. Well... If I took a more general, typical audience, uh, even out of the Adventist community, I think I would get probably a wider smattering of answers. And, uh, you know, the, these, are, these are very simple statements. And, of course, Sigve, you're right. Uh, couldn't we choose in some way? Uh, in some way, all of them have been used and probably all have a point to make that we would want to explore and put together. But that is the point of why we need to think a little bit uh, about salvation, because sometimes what we say and what we sing about and what we communicate to other people makes extremely little sense to them, because we talk in-house talk, we talk 2,000 years of Christian tradition, we throw these terms around. Next week I will show you, for example, some excerpts from uh, our community's fundamental beliefs, and you may be surprised to see how many of these models plus others are put together in different ways. Um, so it, it, it's often uh, surprising how many different ideas we have out there about what salvation is. Um, so let me, can, can I just do something showing you sort of the extremes of, of how our communication can break down or even how our own theological thinking, our own understanding of Scripture, and nothing can be more central than the understanding of salvation, can actually break down. I remember having somebody put it to me this way. Did not come from a Christian background, but was very smart. And said, let me see if I can understand this correctly. You Christians believe that God is just... God is holy, and God is righteous, and God is honorable, and I could sort of, you know, you could see you nodding about all of that. Yes, yes, yes. And therefore, God hates evil and sin and abuse and dishonoring of God and disobedience to God's law. And I could see where this was going, so I stopped nodding. <laughs> and... Um, he said, then you tell me 
that God cannot just forgive anyone unilaterally, without contract, that God will only forgive if God gets something. And so you tell me that God takes his only begotten son, sends him to earth for the express purpose of dying. Now, can I say this? I I don't want to sound blasphemous, but I, I do want to say what he said to me. You're telling me that God murdered? Because, you know, to the degree you say God, you know, God extracted or needed Jesus' death. God murders or allows Jesus to commit suicide. You see how this, or or, or God somehow demanded the voluntary death of this innocent person. And then God turns around. And God, on the basis of that, is willing to let reams and reams and reams. Of course, if you add in a, a few chosen ones, wicked ones, into heaven, eternally, to live with God. What sense does that make? Can you see the dilemma? Now, of course, in this class, you've, you've thought through many of these things before. And so this is, this is what prompts many people to say, how do we understand salvation? And, and, and how does it actually work? In Gustav Allen's famous book, he, he wrote it in 1931, and um, it has become a theological classic. Um, the categories that he defined have become the standard categories if you want to describe soteriology or the doctrine of salvation or atonement in any textbook that you read in theology. Uh, not to know about this book is sort of like to admit that you are theologically uninformed. You know, it's just, it just, you just, it, it, it's a major work. Now, it has its limits. It has its historical location. A lot of argument has gone on. Uh, many detailed points could be argued differently. But in broad strokes, um, Alain uh, articulated uh, three different historical models for salvation, theological understandings of salvation. Remember, all of these assume that we're saved because God loves us, because God is gracious to us. We're not saved by works. We're saved by God's grace. And somehow it happens in and through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. All of these doctrines believe that. But how does it actually work is the issue and the question that's stuff. So, um, he defined these three. And these are in the chronological order. Um, and uh, what I will share with you is not only exactly what he said in the book, but what has tended to become sort of the standard understandings of these three. Just one footnote to this. I want you to think about this. The first four to five centuries of the Christian church, after Jesus, after the New Testament, was a period of intense theological reflection. In fact, as Christianity became more prominent in the Roman Empire, both East and West, it became standard practice. Someone like Peter Brown, who studied this period, uh, points out that at the marketplaces in Thessalonica and in Athens and in Rome, ordinary people would be discussing, in the 4th century, for example, 5th century, would be discussing Christological debates. Was Jesus homoousios or was he homoousios? <laughs> was he of the same substance as God or of like substance to God? And no, this is not on the same par as how many angels can dance on the, pin of, you know, on the head of a pin. Uh, there were tremendously important issues at stake 
in these views. So the debates were revolving around the Trinity and around the person and nature of Christ. Remarkably, and, and there were major creeds laid down during that period. You've heard of Nicaea, Chalcedon, Constantinople, and others. Remarkably, during this period, it was simply assumed that the understanding of the function of Jesus, or salvation, was largely understood. We have almost no definitive statements defining what is orthodox belief about salvation during the very period we have the focus on the nature of Christ and Christ's relationship with God and the Trinity, which is an interesting point. And uh, so keep that in mind. The focus was on these other things, and it was assumed that there was an understanding of salvation that was commonly held. So let's just quickly uh, talk about these three models. Um, Alain uses the term the classic or dramatic model for the earliest in the Christian church, the one during the period that I've just talked about. The early church fathers, he summons us to, um, to support this view. Irenaeus, sometimes also uh, called uh, 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 the founder of an idea called recapitulation. In other words, the history of human beings goes from innocence through a learning process, and the end aim is adoption, is, is being drawn into the inner life of God, um, sharing in God's life. Uh, Origen, the famous Greek father, brilliant early church thinker, and of course the incomparable Augustine, who probably should be put in brackets because <coughs> Augustine's views are complicated, but Aulen tried to marshal him for, for, the, for that early view. Um, the third, there's a little second point underneath each one is what enemies or detractors have called it. So when you see the ransom theory, if you heard the ransom theory, <coughs> this is the um, this is the the put down for this early model. His book was largely to retrieve and to bring back into prominence this early classic or dramatic model. So we're going to explore this a little bit more and talk about it. But first, we need to understand the others. Secondly, he referred to the Latin or objective model of salvation. And this um, clearly has a brilliant thinker as, at its origin. A thousand years after the uh, end of the New Testament and the death of Jesus, um, Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century writes a book called Curdius Homo, in which he outlines the contours of this very understanding of salvation. We'll share a little bit more about that sometimes called the satisfaction theory. And then thirdly, he articulated the love or subjective model attributed to uh, Abelard, although historically that's very difficult to do. Uh, Abelard was a much more complicated thinker than many people think, but let's just go with the general understanding. It's nice to have these two scholastic figures, Anselm over there in England and Abelard in Paris coming up with these two diametrically opposed views, and it's just nice to have that sort of you know, feeling of a dialectic between these two people. All right. Uh, Abelard, by the way, well, I'll, t I'll tell you something about him later. 12th century, his life just overlaps that of Anselm, but he's a little uh, younger man than Anselm. And this is often called and uh, put down, typically, as the moral influence theory. You've heard of that, haven't you? You've probably heard of that as an accusation. Oh, those West Coast peep Christians, uh, those Adventists, they're, they're, all, they're all moral influence people. Right. And often we don't know quite what, what all that means, so we'll come and take a look at that. So these, these are the three models of salvation, and uh, let's just take um, a little bit of an intensive view here. Let me just say that if you have any questions, 
please feel free to ask them even while we're going, particularly if they're questions for information or clarity's sake, and then I'll try to wrap this up soon so that we can actually have a bit of discussion about some of this as well. All right, so a little bit more about... Now, I'm, I'm going to follow the order of what is most common to us. So just briefly, Anselm's model, although it starts in the medieval period in the 11th century, and we can definitively say it began then, we find very little of that idea before then, it has become the standard view in Orthodox Catholicism and Protestantism. And I'll talk a little bit later on how the reformers shifted things slightly but kept the essential contours of this model in place. So this is what probably you grew up with and this is the view that has become clearly dominant in Christianity and in Adventism as well. So Anselm of Canterbury, he was um, a, a very famous person um, I got to know him very well because my doctoral dissertation was on Bart's 1931 book on Anselm, but not Curtius Homo, but his uh, proslogion, which is his so-called ontological proof of God's existence. And so um, I, have a, I have a tremendous respect for Anselm. I think he was a remarkable thinker. And the book is a wonderful read. Um, if you want to just discover that what we often think of as the Dark Ages were really not dark, uh, then uh, read a book like this. It's still accessible today, particularly because this theory has dominated our thinking in the modern period. And it's just a wonderful tour de force <laughs> of uh, someone who picked up on an Augustinian idea called faith-seeking understanding. He started with the dogmas or the teachings of the church, then he put the Bible aside, of course, having, knowing it thoroughly, but he put the Bible aside and attempted to explain rationally why it made sense to believe what the church was saying. Does that make sense to you? Faith, seeking understanding. Rather than, I'll seek to understand, and if my understanding leads me to faith, then I'll believe, right? So not, I seek to know and then I'll believe, but I believe in order that I may understand. Credo ut intelligum, as, and, as Augustine put it, or fides quarens intellectum, as Anselm himself put it. That's his way of approaching things. So he wrote this book, Curtius Homo, and the best translation into English would be, Why the God-Man? Or Why Did God Have to Become Human? And that's what he wrestled with. That's, that's the question. Now, understand that the word Latin is to point us to the fact that we are talking about the Western Christendom. Footnote. The Eastern Greek church has still remained in a quite a different world. And we'll come back to that when we talk about the dramatic model. So this happens in Western, the, Le the old Roman Empire, and of course the resurgent Holy Roman Empire begun by Charlemagne in the year 800. So it is a time in which society was dominated by the feudal system. What happens in the feudal system? That's right, you have lords and Somebody owns a castle, and you have peasants around, and they owe entirely their, their security, but in turn, they have to pay often huge taxes and essentially have no freedom other than to provide resources for uh, the Lord. And so it's an aristocratic-based system, often based on, on knights and others, and, and this is the feudal system. And its essential element is honor. 
is uh, that because somebody is the Lord of the manor, they deserve a certain amount of respect and honor. And the deepest, deepest threat to that feudal system was revolt, was disrespect, was to, to break the, 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 the ties that made you committed to the Lord. And obviously you must recognize that these are, of course, social constructs. There's no... There's no natural reason why certain people should be peasants and others should be aristocrats. And so this un- soft underbelly was there all the time. And ob- obviously uh, in the political realm, if revolt happened, it was crushed very quickly and mercilessly. In the, in the church sphere, this is the period in which the whole penance system, confessions and doing penance arose. What do you do if you've infracted uh, against one of the church canon law or one of the one of the teachings, if you've sinned either mortally or venially, what do you do? Well, the church created a whole system of penance, of coming, making confession. The priest would then give you a list of things to do. So many hail marys. I'm not sure if they had hail marys back then, but uh, that's the idea. So many candles. Do this and this and this, and so you could ex- you could exact sort of it's it, partly punishment but partly satisfaction for correcting uh, the, the evil and the sins that you've committed. Does that make sense? So this is the background to this idea. This is where its sociological and political origins lie and why it made sense to the readers of Curtius Homer in the 11th century. Now, it, it, it rests on three fundamental principles. It argues, number one, that God, just like a feudal lord, only God is lord of lord and king of kings. And God is the supreme feudal lord. God is lord of all. And God's honor demands satisfaction. That means that subjects, and that means all creatures, the whole cosmos, needs to give God due satisfaction for God's honor. In obedience, in loyalty, in love, and in praise. When that honor of God is broken, or is, is, is brought into, dis, into disrepute. God cannot simply turn a blind eye. The very governance, the very structure of the cosmos would fall to pieces if that didn't happen. So God would need to exact punishment for that infraction. Does that make sense? So to maintain the, 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 the system and the honor of God, either satisfaction must be given, that means faithfully providing loyalty and obedience to the Lord, to God, or punishment. Now, once sin has happened, human beings are not capable any longer because of original sin. Human beings are not capable of giving God the satisfaction that God needs. The essence of sin is rebellion, is dishonoring of God's name. And our sin is enormous because the honor of God is so high that this is not just a little sin against the neighbor, this is the sin against the power of God. So hugely important. The humans cannot provide satisfaction. The only other thing left to God is to demand and to execute death. That is the punishment that would be appropriate for the sin of dishonoring God. Now, God, however, is not only just, God is also loving. And so Anselm writes that God found a way in which God could be both loving and just at the same time. And what God did was that God sent Jesus, the Son of God, 
the second person of the divine trinity, who became a human being. Now, why did God have to become human? Why the incarnation? Because satisfaction had to be made, right? And you can, you can see two sides here. Satisfaction had to be developed or provided, and punishment had to be borne. So Jesus becomes human. One way of putting it, a little oversimplified, but just to get your attention, Jesus had to become human because only humans can die. And that's why that first, someone had to die, someone had to pay the penalty for these sins. So, Anselm argues eloquently that Jesus came, he lived a life of merit, he did all the good things, and as he was doing and performing all these merits, he was piling up merit in the treasury in heaven, just as you can imagine uh, merits on earth would pile up a sort of credit that if you did a few sins, you could sort of count on the credit covering you for a while, um, and so you wouldn't have to have such, uh, such penance, but you can get the picture. So Jesus lived a life of perfection, he developed infinite merit because he was an infinite person and of infinite virtue and then he voluntarily gives his life or is demanded by the father and he voluntarily agrees to the father's demand that he die he is put to death on the cross and in doing so he dies an infinite price because who is he he's not that's why he argues that an angel couldn't do it another perfect creature couldn't do it um, an idealized adam before the fall could never do it it had to take the infinity of God's own person to do this. And so Jesus dies. The resurrection then is the point at which Jesus ascends to heaven and says to God the Father, now I have overcome, I'm victorious, and now I want to decide who is going to get the merits that I have earned up and are sitting in the treasury. And, and some argued that Jesus decided that he would give it to all those who had faith in him. There it is. Courteous homo. Why did God become human? Jesus had to become human in order to die for us. Jesus had to become human to pay the penalty and to live a perfect life. He needed to be God in order to do that and to satisfy the honor of God and to pay a high penalty. And he had to be human in order to die. So that's, that's the model. Let, let's see if we can, just for a moment, and we can't do too much of a stop here because I want to go to those other models. But quickly... Let me see if anyone has figured out. The, can you see the strength of this argument? I, I hope you can see that it's tight, it's, it's logical, given the assumptions that he made. And uh, as I say, this view was so, um, so uh, uh, appealing that even the reformers continued to, to use it with a few uh, modifications. But I would like to ask if anyone can see what is the Achilles heel? What is surprising in this view Okay, there's somebody there. I hear all your words, and I'm still not connecting the dots here. So when I look at this and think about it, I'm saying, okay, whatever, but there's still something mystical going on here, and I'm going to go with whatever mystical explanation there is, even though I don't understand it. So what I'm really looking at here is perhaps the next step where... This is really about Jesus Christ destroying Satan. Uh, because, I mean, we say all these things, but I still don't understand why the death and the blood. That's, that's all mystical. Let me try. I, I'm just for a moment going to be an advocate for, 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 for Anselm. Please understand, that's not my position, but I just want to argue. Other people have called it a commercial view. 
This is a very contractual thing. This is looking almost like a legal. This is a, a legal uh, a view. And that's why the reformers called this a penal substitutionary view. And that's just the word penal. Uh, uh, so the view here is, just think of a law court. There are certain... There are certain guilts that are, you know, certain things have to be dealt with. And so God can't just forgive. God can't just cancel this without risking the whole collapse of the government of heaven. And so what God found a way to do was to pay a penalty, to actually die bearing that. That's why people who believe this have no qualms about talking about God's wrath pouring out on Jesus, right? And um, God pours onto him the penalty that every one of us deserve. If you want to see how this works out in Hollywood, look at uh, um, the Passion of what is it called? The Passion of Christ. Mel Gibson is it? Yeah, and you can see he had to make him so bloody because he had has this this theology that it's all pouring out on him. Yeah, God can't forgive without having some some contract. Yeah, interesting. It seems to me that there are societies today where honor is paramount. Who would understand this theory of salvation much better than our idea of God is love? For instance, I think of Islam. Yes, yes. You know, we we live in a modern Western world in which issues of guilt and uh, have, have become much more important. But there are still honor shame societies where this would make much more um, sort of immediate resonance. Very good point. I'm still probing for the Achilles heel. All the points you're making are very good. But the Achilles heel. But um, uh, my, my question is not related to the Achilles heel, but to the context. It's just something that has intrigued me. That Anselm writes his book, he presents it to Pope Urban II. Yeah. After the Crusades had started, mm-hmm. there's a huge upheaval, brother, you know, a huge sort of movement rolling across Europe. Right. Where, you know, bloodshed, you know, killing, you know, and so on. And it seems, you know, that his, his whole model in some ways is a model that upholds a certain subservience to authority, that honor, you know, satisfaction of honor. And it discourages, it seriously discourages opposition to authority. You know, it's not part of the, you know, this theological problem, but it is a, there is a societal consequence to it, it seems to me, uh, that... that I have not seen much of a debate, not, not much of a discussion or even acknowledgement of that because I would have liked Anselm to write some kind of other book, you know, that would be relevant to that horrible initiative that the Crusades represented. And, well, and there, is no, there is complete silence on well, that. Well, perhaps it was having more of an impact than we think. That... Uh, he didn't get the point of the of the Christus Victor, you know, conquering of forces of evil. But certainly, the culture was there for talking about blood and sacrifice and uh, all of this sort of thing. And uh, very interesting connection. Now, uh, I, I, I've, I've got to go on, otherwise we're going to lose uh, the threads here. But uh, yeah, let's pick up one or two quick things. Yeah, pretty skilled, obviously, for this thing is the primary premise. Once you accept the primary premise. That's a good logical point. That is a, uh, always an issue in any deductive system. Of course, it's only as strong as its initial premises. Very good. There's a biblical Achilles heel. Okay, uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, maybe some of you will see it. But let, let me just share this with you because I've got to go on to those other two. 
let me put it this way. Do you notice that the logic, the logic of this argument would even have been strengthened if the New Testament witness was that God sent his son, Jesus, he came, he didn't even need to live much of a life, you know, maybe just enough to, to, to develop a little bit. Uh, of, but, but the way it's been taken out of, Anselm still needed the life of Jesus to earn the merits. But the way it's come in Protestantism, Jesus comes to die. That's all it's needed. So why didn't he just get born, um, die quickly and get it over with? And here's the point. It would have been even stronger if the New Testament had said that God gave his son forever. Jesus dies and there's no resurrection. The resurrection plays no logical role in this whole view. And I put it to you that no biblical scholar could possibly read the New Testament, the four Gospels and Paul, without coming to the conclusion that the single overwhelming point of it all is the resurrection. The resurrection is the point of all of the biblical witness and to therefore have a model of salvation that doesn't put the resurrection in dead center is going to make one wonder about its biblical quality not only its logical correctness so i'll leave that for you to think of quickly a couple of other things what protestants did is largely take this logic without change except for emphasizing two other words penal you remember that the reformation is about justification by faith about God giving a verdict. We are simultaneously justified and sinners, simul justus et peccator. You've heard of that? So this idea that comes up in Luther and even in Calvin is this idea that uh, in Jesus, we, Jesus develops a robe of righteousness which is put around us. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, but Christ's righteousness. So the word substitution is critical. Jesus takes our fate and place so that we will take his deserts and his place and in the penal or the legal or the forensic framework it all happens in the books of heaven you have sins piled up jesus dies blood is poured out wiped out and you're forgiven and you go free so i just mentioned that why objective because you know why is this called an objective model uh i acknowledges because salvation is not in us it's in christ Everything happens in God's actions in Christ. Christ is the one in whom we're saved. Uh, we just then accept it and receive it, but it happens in Christ. There's no discontinuity there. However, he pointed out that there is discontinuous a divine action because in some ways the Father demands one thing that the Son has to give. You know, the Father can't forgive until the Son pr- provides payment. So God demands one thing, then there's a break. Sorry, <laughs> then there's a break, and uh, the sun provides another thing, which then provides a solution to this whole picture. All right, let's go on. So that's the model we know best, and I won't take time on that. There's some Bible verses that, uh, and some summary statements, but I think we've got it. <clears throat> Much aligned, because it was a model well-liked by uh, Schleiermacher and liberal theology, but it certainly was not, Abelard was no liberal. Uh, he was a profound biblical scholar, remarkable individual, known in the broader culture more because of his love relationship with Heloise. Uh, um, it's an incredible story. But anyway, just, just considered the finest Christian mind of the 12th century. And uh, one doesn't have any particular book in which he argues for the view, partly because he's been pushed into the position 
the actual Abelard, the historical Abelard, had a far subtler, more comprehensive view of salvation. But just for now, we'll use him as a poster boy for this view. All right? Because he does make some statements that seem to point in this direction. Uh, and the epistle, his commentary in the Epistle to the Romans is a good example because of what he doesn't say, what the Protestants now want to say, and what he emphasizes. Here's the point. Jesus does not come to appease the wrath of God because God is not wrathful. God hates sin, yes, but God is not wrathful to God's fallen children. God is an incredibly loving and empathetic parent who understands the mess we're in and who forgives us before we even ask for forgiveness. Right? What then is the purpose of the cross? Does God need the cross? No. The cross is how far Jesus was willing to go to identify with us, to reveal God's love to us, so that we could actually get it. We put Jesus on the cross, we human beings. Sin put Jesus on the cross. And the, the, the good news of the cross is that God did not withhold God's self from getting messy and getting dirtied up in God's demonstration of God's love for us. So that's the critical point, that Jesus comes to reveal the love of God and the cross is not demanded by God, but is the consequence of God with us taken to its full extent. God forgives without needing payment. Now notice salvation, and this is why this view is in some sense a bit more logical to many. Remember the opening little blasphemous challenge I put? Why would God murder an innocent person and then let a lot of bad people get into heaven? Well, this, this model doesn't have that problem at all. God will not let anyone into heaven who hasn't been transformed by the power of God's love. That's it. If, you don't, if you're not converted, you won't be saved. But God has done everything possible to reach us with the love of God so that we may be changed and our hearts may be cha changed. And even if we just say, yes, I get it, and a tear rolls on our cheek and we say, I understand the love of God, that's enough. Enough for you to have caught the picture of God. And of course... Um, I, I may use some language that you may have heard. You know, God turns us from enemies into friends. No longer servants, but my friends. You know? but yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's part of this. So salvation happens in us, but through the life of Christ and the death of Christ. Why is this viewed as subjective? Well, you can see this is not subjective like it's, it's speculation. This is subjective because it's in us rather than in Christ. Salvation is provided for or made possible by the work of God in Christ, but it happens in us. Whereas in Anselm's model, salvation actually happens in Christ. And we just get it as a gift. See the difference? All right. And then, why is this called a moral influence theory? Well, this is a bit of a detractor, but this view is, oh, sin is not really that bad. Uh, we have sort of distorted views of God. We have sort of strange misconceptions. And we have a disordered desire and disordered will. And God steps into the world and he turns us uh, back towards the true understanding of God. And therefore, the, the, the morality of God's actions change us into moral beings. And therefore, God can justify us. And therefore, God can save us. At its worst, of course, this is varying on what we call Pelagianism, salvation by faith plus works. But it doesn't have to be, and I personally think in the historical Abelard, he didn't have that view. But that's, that's my reading of, of Abelard. I cannot find in Abelard any time that he gives a label for this theory. He's, he's doing commentary on, on, on Romans. It's just part of the broader theological picture. And I think he thought that he was in continuity with the early church, much more. 
All right. And notice here, continuous divine action. God moves to us, and when God finally reaches us and we respond, salvation has happened. But it is discontinuous salvation, because salvation is not done by God, but salvation happens when we respond. Okay. Now, time is really pushing, so I'll again slip over the summary and the text. So sorry about missing the text. I'd like to have read some of the key passages with you, but I, I need to finish this final model. So the third one, the classic or the dramatic model, is what the thrust of Aulen, Gustav Aulen's book, was all about. He said this view has been left in the, um, on the, the dust heap of history. This was the dominant Christian view for centuries, almost a thousand years, and we neglect this at our peril. He gave a strong reading, <laughs> uh, and scholars have challenged some of the details. He even tried to bring Luther in as a champion of this view. I'm not sure that that is successful. But the point is that Aulen has been incredibly successful in making most modern theologians take much more attention to the early church view. Now, let me say a word about the ransom theory. Here's how it, it went. This is why a lot of people rejected it and didn't give it any time. Uh, you can find writings in the early church that go something like this. Um, the devil uh, disobeys God and becomes a rebel. And he's, uh, there's war in heaven and he's cast out. And he comes to this earth and essentially he takes it captive. And he takes with him the whole inheritance, the whole human race. And he is like a pirate who has hijacked, <laughs> who has taken people captive. So what does God do? Well, God is going to defeat Satan, but he's going to do it in a smart way. So what he does is he enters into some negotiation with Satan, and they come up with a deal. And the deal is that God will give Jesus, his only son, as, as a ransom. That'll be the, the, the payment demanded. He'll give it to the devil, and in return, the devil will give up uh, human beings and his kingdom of this earth. And the devil says to himself, hmm, if I get Jesus, I've got everything, and I'll be able to win this, this battle. And uh, 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 God has a trump card up his sleeve. Jesus comes, he dies, Satan thinks he's victorious, and the resurrection. Notice the resurrection is critical in this model. The resurrection means he never thought it through that death couldn't hold Jesus. And Jesus rises from the dead, and guess what happens? Satan loses humans, the, the, the hijacked, the, the captives, and he can't hold Jesus. And so God tricks the devil and, uh, and uh, <laughs> salvation has been achieved. Now, I hope that some of you will, will feel a little squirmy about this view. Uh, what does it say about God? Now, here's the, here's the problem. I think what we've done in, in reading like this is we've taken the stories, the little parables told to children to help them understand. I mean, this is the Mediterranean world. Hijackings were happening all the time. Piracy was rife. So you tell a story. Maybe it's just been in the news. Somebody was captured. And you tell a story to make it simple for children to understand, right? And then along comes, and along comes a theologian. I mean, we don't have complete documents from the early church. We've often only got what somebody writes against somebody else. Yeah? So often we don't really know what somebody really said. So when you, when you, when you take that and you then call it, this is the whole early church was the ransom theory, you've just never read a sophisticated theologian like Irenaeus or Origen or the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory Great or Silver or any of this. So let's be very, very careful. That's a real pejorative 
a notion and it is not true to, to, to say that that was the whole view. Actually, the heart of this view was indeed the notion that salvation is not a contract. Sorry. Salvation, I'm not, I'm not normally wired up like this. Um, salvation is not a contract. It's not some kind of um, uh, thing that God needs to be worked out in the books of heaven. It's real. Sin ends up causing bondage, suffering, slavery, and the whole cosmos is, is enveloped in this. And God is fighting against the principalities and the powers, as Paul would say, and God is going to overcome and defeat them. But God wants to defeat them in such a way that is consistent with the character of God, right, rather than just in brute force. And so God is battling through spiritual warfare, and God wins ultimately. And here is, and you do read this in the early church, ultimately by taking the full violence of evil, the worst the devil could do unto himself in Jesus Christ. And so he absorbs the evil. He, con- he judges evil by demonstrating to everybody who would want to look what its actual character is. The killing of the innocent. The abuse of the righteous. And in doing so, demasks evil, defangs the devil, destroys death through the resurrection. Notice, this theory is entirely built on the resurrection, which is entirely the consistent focus of every single book of the New Testament. In fact, I challenge you here, not only the New Testament, but for all the distinctions, in even the New Testament apocryphal books, every single one of them assumes that the resurrection is at the heart of this whole thing. There is, to my knowledge, there is, no, there is no writing, no Gnostic writing, no, you know, didache, not everything assumes the resurrection. That may differ on all sorts of things, but that is the touchstone of New Testament faith. That's why it was a revolution to the whole thing. So this model builds on the essence of the resurrection. It is div- continuous divine action because God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all united in defeating evil and producing uh, liberation and healing for the subjects of evil. It's objective salvation because God is doing it. We contribute nothing. We are just like the picture of we are hostages. We are held in hostage. Do we do anything when we're saved? Yes, we do what hostages do. Thank you, thank you. Right? And um, rejoicing for what, for what God has done. So it is an objective salvation, no less than Anselm's view, which was so highly prized by Protestants. It is also objective, but it's a continuous divine action. And it is still to this day the dominant view in the Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, there are additional elements to this view that I think strengthen it, and we'll talk more. But my purpose this morning at the Sabbath school class was to introduce to you just these three dominant, major, trans-historical ideas of what salvation is. Let me summarize. The first says, essentially, that we are saved because while God does not relent on God's demands of justice and satisfaction and punishment, God provides somebody to do it in our place, and therefore, essentially, Jesus comes to die on the cross so that God's wrath can be poured out, that sins can be forgiven, and that through his blood we have salvation. The second view 
the uh, subjective view is that God loves us without qualification and nothing can change the love of God. And Jesus comes to demonstrate and show us how far God's love goes. And when we really see it, our lives will be changed and salvation will spring forth like a mustard seed in our lives. And the third view says that what's really going on here is a cosmic battle, a real struggle with death and abuse and violence and horror. And that what God has done is to conquer the horror without being horrible himself. And there are various ways that this can develop, but at its essence it has to be a narrative. You cannot say in one word uh, why we... uh, The only way of accounting for salvation on this model is to say there was this, then there's this, and then this happens, and God does this, and this results, and therefore we are saved. That's why it's a fundamentally narrative view of salvation. Let me end with perhaps the summary. In Christ, God fights and overcomes the principalities and powers that have taken us into bondage. In the resurrection, evil and death are defeated And humanity is now freed to respond to God in praise and thankfulness. And you can see some of this reflected in Ephesians 6.12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. And if you read, we don't have time to read the whole of Romans 8, you'll see how this narrative theme plays out. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God because in Christ he has triumphed over all of this and brought salvation to light. And several other passages, Philippians 2. Well, I'm afraid that is, according to my watch, exactly 11.30 and I'm afraid we didn't have enough questions, but hopefully you will give me just a little bit of of, of forgiveness uh, and I promise you a little bit more discussion uh, the next two weeks if you'll have me back. Thank you very much. Uh, God bless you and thank you for being here.